Hello. This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Ooh. Hello, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the show. So we watched the movie Moon. Yeah. Sam Bell reporting to Central. Everything running smoothly. Over and out. Rock and roll. God bless America. Three years is a long haul, you know. I know you're really lonely up there, but I'm proud of you. Two weeks to go, Sam. Two weeks to go, buddy. Turn left side. Who is he? You tell me who that is! Perhaps you're imagining things. What's going on? Where did he come from? Why does he look like me? here too long, man. You've lost your marbles. Two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. I don't understand what's happening. This is my mind. I want to go home. I know. Bummer. David Bowie's son wrote and directed this. Oh, that's right. Duncan Jones. Yeah. He was a commercial director before this. Okay. And this movie has great special effects, and it was only $5 million budget. Mm-hmm. And part of why it has such great effects is that it was during the writer's strike that happened in 2008. And so a lot of people who would normally be working on, like, your Lord of the Rings is... <laughs> Your Avengers and stuff like that. They were free. They were free and available. And they were like, hey, you, your dad knows how to do things. Maybe you do. Yeah, this was a super bummer. But I I mean, there was a lot of fun to be had, but a lot of, you know, as per usual, existential shit for me. Yeah, it was really funny to me that like about 15 minutes in, you looked at me and you were like, am I going to be bummed out by this movie? And I just like had this (laughs) slow nod. Yeah, like there's oh, no there's yeah. no sugar cutting, no spin that you could put on like, yeah, but there's a kind of hopefulness at the end. Like yeah, it's yeah. it's a bummer, but it's it's a good kind of bummer. I think like one of those that you sort of have to have from time to time because yeah. it just for me, I kept taking these notes. It was like, what really matters? Who are we? <laughs> you know, because yeah. it's like, yeah, cool. Space, moon, all of that kind of shit. But ultimately, it's about, you know, what really matters to this yeah, guy. And well, he starts going cuckoo kachu and. Well, it's this deep sadness, and just to say, we're going to ruin the hell out of this movie, because there are some potential spoiler alerts Mm -hmm. that happen at the end. All he wants, and all that's really driving him, is that when he is done with these three years on the moon, he gets to go home to his wife, and in the scene where it's truly revealed to him that that will never happen for him, Mm -hmm. it's heart-wrenching. It's like really, really difficult to watch, and Sam Rockwell's performance is so good. So good. Well, and I kept thinking that it was going to be one of those, like a sort of Con Air situation, like, I'm mm. getting home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then something would happen and they wouldn't, you know, meet up. I thought that was the kind of bummer, but then you're like, oh no, this is even further than that. That, like, every bit of reality that you thought you knew is not. Yeah. It's a really fucked up scenario that this company has built. Yeah. Like, yeah, because what's the story with that? The idea is that they have a clone, and they have many clones of him up on the moon, and then this person has like a three-year lifespan, 
built into them mm -hmm. and then they die and you wake up a new clone and the whole time they're like convinced that they're there for this three-year mission and that they're going mm -hmm. home they don't have to worry about sending it somebody new up mm -hmm. every week or train train new people well, every three years we've talked about implanting memories and false memories yeah. and that kind of stuff on previous episodes and they that's exactly what they do yeah they say the, that it's like edited them. memories of the mm -hmm. original sam bell and it's like oh my god everything that i am was just like cut yeah like a director's cut but cool stuff should let's start with some moon shit yeah let's start with some moon shit <laughs> yeah, that's what you have to say moon not moonshine moon shit so that that's a mining company right in yes. the in the movie it's a mining company what are do we know what they're mining so they're mining helium-3 which is thought to be much more abundant on the moon than it is on earth it's a really great power technology now, like a while back, I was talking about fusion technologies mm -hmm. and that they try to fuse deuterium and tritium, which is hydrogen two and hydrogen three mm -hmm. together. And then that would create the fusion reaction. But a lot of scientists believe that helium three is a much better base for fusion because it's non-radioactive and the higher energy byproducts that it gives off can actually be easily contained using an electromagnetic field. Mm. And then they can actually use the momentum energy of those byproducts to harness even more electricity, like as they bounce off the magnetic field. It's to kind of boil this down for myself is it basically that you can manipulate this energy easier? It's more effective. Okay. So the reason not to use helium-3 right now is that it requires much higher temperatures to create fusion than the current deuterium and tritium combination. Gotcha. gotcha. So we're working on a specific way to do fusion, and this is a way to do fusion better once we've figured oh, that out. Oh, all right. All so, right. So, yeah. And helium-3, <laughs> it's also used in refrigeration. It can achieve temperatures of 0 0.2 Kelvin. Uh-huh. And to give you a sense of how cold that is, zero degrees Fahrenheit, which is, some would say it's pretty cold, mm -hmm. is 255 Kelvin. So okay. this is 0.2 Kelvin. Oh. They keep making references to the... The far side of the moon, the dark side of the moon. What, yes. What is that now? There is no actual dark side of the moon. Mm -hmm. It's just the far side of the moon. Mm -hmm. And because the moon is tidally locked to the Earth, as it's known in space mm -hmm. parlance, the same face is always facing Earth. So right. we never see the back side of the moon. In fact, the first pictures of it were taken in 1960 by the Russians. And it was like way more cratered than mm -hmm. anybody expected because it's kind of been protecting the Earth from outside asteroids. I do want to mention that in the movie, there's two reasons that he's doing the mining on the backside of the moon. Mm -hmm. One is the dramatic reason, which is that it's even sadder for him to not even be able to look at Earth. Right. The other, which is more legitimate, is that over time, if you keep mining the surface of the moon, you might change the reflectivity of the moon, mm -hmm. and that may affect wildlife on Earth who use the moon's brightness at night. There, there's actually a scene that some scientists have a problem with where he like drives to the edge of the moon and like looks out and right. the Earth and sees like the Earth rise and right. just looks at it and he's crying. Right, exactly. It's very, very symbolic. And realistically, he would have had to have driven like. 500 miles to yeah. make that happen oh, boy. <laughs> would have been quite the drive. <laughs> yeah. And then all you get is tears at the end. Yeah. But mm -hmm. there's also evidence that the near side of the moon has a thinner crust and that's allowed volcanoes to erupt and fill the craters that 
had been previously formed. Earth obscures four square degrees out of 41,000 square degrees for, for the whole lunar sky. So it's not enough of an explanation to suggest like the entire near side of the moon is shielded from the Earth. It's also that it has a thinner crust. <laughs> the dark side element is like the sun does hit all parts of the moon, right. if you think about it. Mm-hmm. But we, it's dark because we haven't seen it. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Which it is weird to think that the whole thing's up there and we, for the first time, saw the other side of it. That's pretty This whole crazy. time we're like, what's the... Oh, just acne scars. <laughs> it really left, does. Right it, looks, it looks a little creepy. Serious pot marks. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. Well, interestingly, just talking about the gravitational pulls of all these different things, I wanted to mention a Lagrange point. Ooh. So it's an interesting gravitational anomaly that we can use to our advantage. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like parking spots in space. So if you think about it, like there's a spot between the Earth and the moon, closer to the moon, where both gravitationally are pulling on you the same amount. Mm-hmm. So you actually, without using like thrusters or anything, kind of sit in space and right. don't move. It's like the Goldilocks and the three bears of the universe. You find <laughs> that the, sweet just spot. Right. Just right. And so it's called a Lagrange point, named after the French dude who discovered him. Ah, uh, okay. I was like, that's a little fancy for yeah. my case. <laughs> there's a few of these gravitational parking spots around the moon, including one on the far side. And so when you factor in the gravitational pull of the sun and all the other planets and stuff, like it gets a little tricky Mm -hmm. but there's these perfect spots to build like a base like a space station and you can leave it there with very little maintenance yeah but the plan for the james webb space telescope which is the successor to the hubble telescope Mm -hmm. which has been in development for decades right is to launch it to the second Lagrange point behind the moon and have it use the moon as like a shade to block sunlight okay so it's like able to see deep parts of the universe that the Hubble could never dream of wow. because the Hubble's in Earth orbit. Right. That would be so cool. the Hubble is about the size of a bus and the James Webb telescope is about the size of a tennis court. Oh, which so, is bigger than a bus, y'all. It's bigger. It's bigger. Yeah, that's, that's what I've learned in my studies. <laughs> it's bigger. But yeah, it's like going to be all these things combined to make it like a huge leap forward in telescope technology. Totally. Well, and then it like further not only mining, but then construction in general. I was reading up on Lunar Crete. Remember, you were talking about it before. Yeah. What, I don't even yeah. remember what episode we were talking about, but just like <laughs> it being much more efficient to use the, the materials that already exist on the moon than certainly the idea of shipping all of those materials from Earth. Mm-hmm. Money wise, water wise, all of that kind of shit. Yeah. So let's just like break it down. What is what is concrete, man? Concrete. <laughs> is made of two parts it's made of (laughs) because this is where the like the concrete versus cement thing comes in because they're they're different things i realized that like because we cut out of my like tirade about concrete versus cement last time that we talked about it so maybe we can bring it up now yeah now you can finally let it unfurl concrete and cement are two different things that's right cement is an ingredient in concrete that's right concrete is made of two different parts there's sand or tiny bits of ground up rock and then there's a cement that's in powder form that fills the space between those little grains and then binds them together when you combine it with water Mm -hmm. so that's that's it's actually quite simple. I yeah, didn't realize. It's, it's I was like, easy. "What are these? What are these like chemicals that just exist in our earth that mm. allow things to stick together like that?" It's kind of fucking nuts. So apparently, there's there's concrete that could be made from moon rocks and soil that would be stronger than ordinary concrete here found on Earth. It could require less material and be lighter weight. It could cost less than previous estimates. And I was reading about this dude, this like 17 year old kid named Sergio Para. He was doing these experiments where he was testing earthly materials, for example, sand, water, and a certain type of binder known as 
Portland cement, which is a cement that contains limestone, which is made from the tiny shells of ancient marine organisms. Interesting. Going deep. Didn't know that's what limestone was made of, but that's what limestone's made of. Oh, apparently. that's cool. Yeah. So the main chemical component in limestone is called calcium carbonate. It also includes calcium sulfate, which is a substance that helps control how quickly the concrete hardens. So science, am I right? Yeah. Jeez Louise. It's funny. I first learned about Lunarcrete because of this movie, because when Duncan Jones screened it at NASA's Space Center in Houston, people were asking him, like, why did the moon base look the way that it Mm -hmm. does in the movie? And he was saying, well, I imagine in the future, you're not going to want to take everything with you. You'll want to use the resources on the moon to build things. And a woman in the audience raised her hand and said, I'm actually working on something called Mooncrete, which is concrete that mixes with lunar regolith and ice water from the moon's polar caps. And everyone's like, get out of here, crazy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, well, that's what's nuts is to think that this 17-year-old kid is just kind of messing around. So he tests the earthly materials, and then he works with water and simulated moon materials, including a cement made of calcium oxide and aluminum oxide, which can both be extracted from lunar soil. They harden into small little bricks, two inches wide by one inch high and one inch deep. Hmm. And the blocks made from the normal concrete could withstand a pressure of 1,626 pounds per square inch, mm-hmm. whereas the lunar creek could withstand about 2,676 pounds per square That's inch, so 65% more. more. It, like I said, it would be able to require less water, so like moon colonists would be able to create water from hydrogen and oxygen extracted from the lunar rocks. It would still be like much more precious, so you don't want to waste that on the building process. You want it you know, you want to be able to save that for people to drink yeah. and to exist as humans. <laughs> and also what's cool is to think that because lunar gravity is one-sixth that of Earth's surface, colonists on the moon could build very tall structures. Although it seems, based on just what I've read, right, that they'll likely build shorter light structures and then cover their, the roofs with lunar soil. Mm. So that would help, like, you know, keep the inside of the dwellings cool and also sense. protect from small meteorites and solar flares and shit. I like that they can build up. Because that's what you want to do, I, That's right? what I want, man. <laughs> want I just want to be like, be building fling, up. Fling. Yeah, exactly. But oh, anyway, man. so I just thought that was fucking rad. Can Not... you imagine skydiving on the moon? I mean, you I can really imagine. Do... You can imagine anything, can't you? Well, well, you can't really open a parachute is that's the problem. That's true. <laughs> You'd have to land with a jetpack. Yeah. Oh, man. But just even being able to moonwalk. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, but I can she moonwalk, doesn't mean... but... Yeah. <laughs> that I've practiced. I've spent many an Earth Day practicing. <laughs> moonwalked yeah i've moonwalked i haven't moonwalked you get what i'm saying i moonwalked at the kids science center when i was growing up they had like one of those like harnesses that you go in as like a five-year-old and they're like this is what it would look like on the moon gravity so i was talking about helium three before and i wanted to also mention helium four which is the common helium that's in all of our party balloons (laughs) so it's really interesting, helium-4, because it has a really low boiling point, and so it's perfect coolant for things like MRI machines. Okay. But we're running out of it fast. <gasps> and the reason is every time you pop a helium balloon at your birthday party, the helium floats up into the upper atmosphere, mixes with the other air, and you can't recover it. Oh. oh. So we may one day look back on birthday parties as one of the biggest wastes of precious resources that humans ever Jesus did. Jesus Christ. And just, I mean, but how funny is someone talking with a balloon voice? Huh? I know, like <laughs> the voice alone, the the legends that will be told about. That's that's worth the losing countless resources. Helium was so abundant that but we just did it like for this. silly voices. 
<laughs> but you could do that for hours. Oh, man. Well, anyway, let's get back to how uh, terrible this is. Yeah. A city in Canada voted to ban balloons because of the helium shortage. What? But okay. last year. And that's not from like killing birds and like getting caught up in no, and, like, jets No, this is because of the helium shortage. Oh, and it's man. like, we got to start thinking about we, w- yeah. the waste of helium. Uh, it's just all going up into the air. Right. You can't get it back. Yeah. Fuck. So last year, though, scientists discovered a, quote, world-class helium gas field in Tanzania. Helium is created when elements of the Earth's crust break down. And the (laughs) Tanzanian West African Rift Valley has a huge number of active volcanoes, and that heats the nearby rocks to produce helium. So now there's, like, all these shallow gas pockets underground in Tanzania, and they said that the finding is big enough to fill over 1.2 million MRI machines. Whoa. And that it's a game changer for the future security of society's helium needs. And that they think that more finds like this may not be far off. So there was like a real worry for a little bit that we're running out of helium. Now we found a new giant reserve, but it's also like... I wonder who's going to get control of that. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, question. how are they going to monetize it? <laughs> You're like, uh, I mean, well, okay, here's where my so brain first went. So we're invading Tanzania. Yeah, I don't, well, that was the second step. The first step was like, oh, man, anybody there just enters and is like, I've arrived. <laughs> so let me talk about thorium a little okay. bit. So. First of all, named after Thor, it's a potential alternative to the radioactive uranium for use in nuclear reactors, and it's sometimes called the green nuclear fuel. So it still produces some nuclear waste, but the waste is significantly less and significantly less dangerous for significantly less time than uranium. Okay. And there's a lot more of it on Earth than uranium. So one of the articles that I read about this, it had a link labeled Hype Check. Mm -hmm. And it was saying that (laughs) if anybody on the internet told you something unbelievable about thorium, you might want to check out our Thorium Myths page. Okay. But then when I checked out the Thorium Myths page, it was like... It's all true. (laughs) It it was kind of like that. Because it was like, well, it it was clearly somebody trying to pour cold water on something that's still amazing. Like it took issue with the misconception that thorium reactors are the only ones that make waste that's safe in 100 years. By the way, if a nuclear reactor melts down, it irradiates the land for 10,000 years with the current thing. But with thorium, it would only be 100 years. Yeah. And so it was basically saying like, that's a total myth. Thorium isn't the only thing that is safe for 100 years. And I was like, wait. Yep. Does one have to exclude the other? Like, it's still way better than uranium. So what are you talking about? Right. It's also believed that thorium reactors weren't what was made in the initial push to make nuclear reactors because uranium was easier to make bombs with. Sure. While it is true that thorium can be made into bombs, it seems as though that they couldn't do it back during the Manhattan Project era. Uh So it's possible that the inertia of more knowledge about uranium caused thorium to kind of fall by the wayside over the years. But there's a lot of people who are kind of touting it as like, why don't we start making nuclear reactors out of this stuff? Because it does the same thing. It's better, more efficient than uranium and way less negative side effects. Right. Nuclear reactors, there's a lot of arguments to be made for and against. Mm -hmm. And I tend to land on the side of like, we should have a combination of things, including mostly green energy. And if we can do the entire world off of solar and wind, then Mm -hmm. let's do that. But nuclear reactors are a lot safer than they get credit Mm -hmm. for. 
and any of the issues are like of really old designs. Now, part of the problem is that a lot of the current nuclear reactors that are in place and in operation are of these old designs. Right. But exactly. if we can continue to improve the technology and build these new designs that are on the blueprints right now, mm-hmm. like there really isn't a concern. The overarching energy I felt throughout all of this was just this like sadness, this loneliness. And Solitude. I started thinking about solitary confinement, you know, and there's all of these the research that's coming out that kind of equates it to psychological torture in its own right. And I, I was just kind of looking into the, the history of it. It's known as the hot box, the hole, the box, the being locked down, shoe which is an acronym for special housing unit, introduced in modern times as a means of protecting the rest of the prison block, I right. suppose. But you, um, Theoretically, you get put in there because you're stabbing other prisoners. Right, theoretically. Evidence has shown that the Quakers and the Calvinists had supported solitary confinement as an alternative form of punishment. It was meant to provide a prisoner with solitude, quote, to reflect on his misdeeds and restore his relationship with God. You know, mm. Calvinisty things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and, and as a matter of fact... alone with God. Yeah, what's crazy is it was first introduced as being an alternative to like public floggings or like hangings and stuff like this was supposed to be the more humane thing to do. So in 1818 there was this New York reformer by the name of Thomas Eddy and he lobbied for inmate labor and solitary confinement in place of other forms of punishment such as hanging and then after that New York decided to include solitary confinement and inmate labor into their penal system. Well, So what do you think? Do you think that hanging is more humane or less humane? Well, I certainly, on a visceral level, it seems so obvious, like, no, man, don't hang them, don't flog them, don't physically assault them. Right. But they need to be punished in some way. And I don't think they certainly didn't have the grasp of like the psychological trauma and, and we'll get to the physical trauma that this causes. So it Mm. seems like maybe a more humane thing. I don't know, because ultimately what is a life? If you're rotting away in solitary it's like what how do you determine that i always felt like if the death penalty is trying to be a deterrent Mm -hmm. to other crimes and stuff i think that solitary confinement is a much worse fate right i think is more effective for prison if if prison isn't about rehabilitation and it's just about deterring people like Mm -hmm. because there's a punishment then i think that being killed is a much better fate Well, absolutely. I mean, if you're talking about like correcting behavior, rehabilitating behavior, causing people psychological trauma and basically giving them PTSD, it's like fucking insane. But solitary confinement was introduced to the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia in 1829 to, as we said before, regulate unruly prisoners. But different commentators attributed the high rates of mental breakdowns to the system of isolating prisoners in their cell. Even even like Charles Dickens visited during his travels to America and he described the, quote, slow and daily tampering with the mysteries of the brain to be immeasurably worse than any torture on the body. And the first comment by the Supreme Court of the United States didn't happen until 1890 and they found that the use of solitary confinement produced reduced mental and physical capabilities. So I could go on and on about like all of the things, the Journal of American Psychology and stuff they've talked about, how, how terrible it is mentally being alone bad yeah being alone bad well but specifically like kept away they're they're also generally really tiny cells but like on the low end apparently there's it's estimated that there's at least 20,000 people in solitary and even as high as like 80 to 100,000 people in solitary confinement in the united states alone holy shit and that to me i think is what's so fucking absurd 
Cause how could that many people need to be in solitary confinement? Exactly. I mean, that's the ultimate thing. Like, how many people should be mass incarcerated in this country? They shouldn't be. Mm. There's a lot of evidence that talks about not just the the mental anguish or, like, you know, the feelings of, like, suicidal thoughts and that kind of stuff, but even shit like, you know, migraines, hallucinations, heart palpitations, dizziness, like, actual physical ailments as a result of the anxiety and the fucking stress and just basically adding to the already terrible reality of living in a prison. And I introduced that idea because that's sort of how I felt watching the movie. I was mm -hmm. like, I feel like Sam Rockwell just like sent himself on this three-year self-prison scape. Because the yeah. entire time it was happening, I was like, I would go crazy. I would go fucking crazy. I would well, go they crazy. do kind of make this point of like the character at the start of those three years kind of needed this time mm -hmm. alone to understand himself better. And that's why like there's a scene where like the old Sam Bell is talking about the recently woken up Sam Bell right. and he's saying like I see what Tess is talking about I see mm -hmm. what my wife is talking about he's he flies off the handle he's mm -hmm. got a problem he needs three years alone to figure himself right. out there's such a vast difference between just like spending time by yourself occasionally right, right and right. you know getting that me time and like figuring your shit out yeah and this kind of lethal lo loneliness which is mm -hmm. Because also, when you're talking about solitary confinement, that's like the state or the, you know, federal government taking away your liberty, right? right. And whether or not you're guilty or not. I mean, we can get into a whole philosophical discussion there. But right. it's like that loss of control, all of that. He at least chose this. Right. And that, well, yeah. and that's the thing is, I was reading this fucking awesome ass article called The Lethality of Loneliness. And it's Ooh. this um, science writer who was talking about, uh, even dating back to the late 50s, there was this therapist by the name of Frieda from Reichmann who had come from Germany to escape Hitler. So she came to the U.S. In, uh, in around the 50s. And she was known for insisting that no patient was too sick to be healed through trust and intimacy. And mm. she was kind of the first one to figure that loneliness sort of lay at the at the base of most mental illnesses and it was perhaps the most terrifying thing in the world and she actually was once one point chastised fellow therapists for withdrawing from emotionally unreasonable patients because it was like this idea that that loneliness would touch you and infect you oh, and like man. that it was like that that fear like it was of contagious yeah since then academic psychologists have a much better understanding of the way cells and nerves work and how loneliness has now been linked to a wide array of bodily ailments. So it's in, in a way, it's kind of like as consequential as the germ theory of disease. A partial list of the, the physical diseases thought to be caused or exacerbated by loneliness could include Alzheimer's, obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, wow. neurodegenerative diseases, and even like tumors can metastasize faster. Did you say in obesity? Yeah. Whoa, 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 let me first react to that. Yeah. Tumors can metastasize faster? Can metastasize faster <laughs> in lonely <laughs> people. Right. Yeah. Wow. I was just going to say, if obesity is a thing, can I blame my loneliness on my fatness or can I blame my fatness on my loneliness? Perhaps they're one in the same. Intrinsically linked. Yeah, exactly. I, well, I mean, you think about like someone dying of a broken heart, but I just hadn't been like, oh, my loneliness has contributed to my Alzheimer's disease. You know what I mean? Yeah. But although... That being said, it's like if you don't keep your brain active by engaging. Right. We've talked about like yeah. exercising the mind and that's like we let exercise it less as we get older and stuff. And yeah. if you're alone all the time, you're exercising it in a different way, at least. Than... Right. Well, I think it's also important to, to distinguish between the kind of loneliness of they use the example of, you know, a productive artist who's like shutting himself up and is like, I'm mm -hmm. working on my piece or right, like right. being, you know, cooped up in the in bed with the flu while your friends are going out or even like being dissatisfied in a marriage, even depression, like 
mourning, for example, like mm. generally speaking, well-adjusted people can, they go through the grieving process and they move on. But like right. they define true, real loneliness as the lack or the want of intimacy, which mm. is like, yeah, I, am I surprised that that is what makes the world go round? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And then it's, and then it's more like that feeling of being rejected or that feeling of being lonely that wreaks havoc on the brain. Yeah. You know? Well, it totally, like, I spent a long time alone in my mid-20s, and I don't mean, like, I was literally not interacting with any friends, but I didn't date or anything like mm -hmm. that, and it fucked with my head. Yeah. Like, it fucks with your self-confidence, which goes deeper than you ever realize yeah. <laughs> until you start to come out of that, and you realize, like, what kind right. of... Because people can tell you things as much, like, about yourself, and you mm -hmm. can be like, I know that I have people in my life that love me, or that I can be loved, but some of the evidence and some of the ways that things go down, and a lot of it's your own choice, but you still, your brain, sp you spend enough time alone, you are convinced that you right. should be, or... And it becomes like, like a self-fulfilling prophecy, yeah, and, and yeah. like self-perpetuated, and you know, we've had our philosophical like discussions about like how technology has isolated us, or not, depending mm. on how you use it, but mm. I think there there is some kind of connection there. I mean, even there was this, the UCLA loneliness scale, it's this like standard US questionnaire that asks... 20 questions, including like, how often do you feel close to people? That kind of mm. stuff, like asking. And as many as 30% of Americans don't feel close to people at a given time. It does vary with age. There's another survey published by the AARP in 2010 that says that more than one out of three adults, 45 and over, reported being chronically lonely. And a decade earlier, only one out of five said that. Is mm. that they haven't made that direct correlation. But I'm just trying to think. I'm like, what are the things that have like pulled, divided us? Well, and you know, we talk about Facebook and, and technology as separating us. But I actually think you've heard of video game Let's Plays. No. This no. is a thing on the internet where it's huge. It's really, really huge where people watch other people play video games. Oh, sure. Of course. I didn't know that that's what that was yeah, called. Yeah, it's called a absolutely. let's play. Like, yeah. let's play. We were just talking about this the other day at a shoot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that for a lot of people who would otherwise be incredibly lonely and maybe be driven to seek out other people, mm -hmm. sit there and their friends are playing video games that's next to point. them. Yeah. And I think that it's the same with podcasts where it's kind of like your friends who aren't like actually there with you are yeah. having a fun conversation. You feel like you're a part of it, mm -hmm. which, you know, that's part of the goal of what we're doing is like, we want people to feel like they're a part of this conversation and we're just like a couple of friends who are talking about stuff. Right. But that also can contribute to if somebody is inherently lonely, that's like giving them enough of a morsel that they're not seeking out more other Right. Because it's easier to sit down and listen to a podcast of two people who are like being funny and joking about something that you're interested in. Yeah. If you if that literally isn't available to you, you'll have to put yourself out there for the riskier mm -hmm. interactions with like meeting somebody in your real life. Yeah, definitely. You don't know how that's going to go, but you know that the people on the podcast will never be mad at you for not handling something well, right. And this was fucking crazy to think about like the, the social vibe, other surveys that confirm that people who feel discriminated against are more likely to feel lonely than those who don't. That seems pretty obvious, mm -hmm. right? They give some examples like women are lonelier than men, though unmarried men are lonelier than unmarried women, these kind of generalizations. The less educated are typically lonelier than the better educated, unemployed and retired are lonelier than the employed. But the, yeah. the key part is is that feeling of rejection, and this is the most damaging part. So where mm. it gets a little heavy, I was reading about psychologists that were studying the experience of gay men during the first decade of the AIDS epidemic. They found that 
you know, this was a, the kind of crisis that at first nobody knew what was happening or it seemed like it was just a quote-unquote gay disease, for lack of a better term. Right. And after that point, like a lot of people, much like we talked about in the Body Snatchers episode, it's like the feeling of being ostracized. Right. And right. the question is like, could social experiences explain why some people die faster than others? And when you think about it, like a closeted man having to like police every bit of information, living in like this constant state of terror of like exposure, having his, like his guard up, this Mm -hmm. like fight or flight, your heart's going to be faster. Your stress hormones Mm. are going to flood your body. Your tissues are going to swell up. White blood cells would swarm out to protect you against any kind of assault. So if you're under that kind of high alert for so long, your blood pressure is going to rise. And part of the immune system that's supposed to fend off smaller, subtler threats like viruses aren't going to do its job. So that social experiment reliably predicted whether an HIV positive gay man would die quickly was whether or not he was in the closet. Like, isn't that fucking crazy to think about yeah because you're just like the i mean and it totally makes sense right i mean stomach ulcers come from stress so because we're on the moon i wanted to talk about moon landing hoaxes Mm -hmm. and the reality behind them we landed on the moon Otherwise, where did we send that big fucking rocket, right? <laughs> like we, we sent that thing into the sky. Where, where did it all go? Uh-huh. First, let's handle the waving flag. Mm-hmm. This is one of the more famous moon conspiracy theories like, well, the wind blew the flag, but there is no wind on the moon. <laughs> so first of all, there has never been a flag on the moon that was seen waving without someone first touching it. It does wave longer than a flag normally would on Earth. And the reason for this is that on Earth, we have an atmosphere. So it's actually the exact opposite of what the conspiracy theorists think. Mm -hmm. Because we have an atmosphere, there's all this air particles there that basically make the flag settle quickly. Oh, interesting. So if you move it, it's going to flag back and forth, but then it's going to stop very quickly because there's air around it. But on the moon, it's a vacuum, so when you go to move it, it continues to wave as, as though in the wind for much longer because there's no air particles around it to slow it down. Wow. So, okay. yeah, there's no air on the moon, which is why the flag waved. Okay, okay. A whole other one. Why was the boot print so pronounced? So if you go to a beach with dry sand and you step in it, the boot print that you put is not pronounced. It's like it falls apart. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. And on the moon, there's no moisture. So a lot of conspiracy theorists are like, how did that uh, footprint okay. happen like that? Sure. Sand on Earth is rounded and smoothed by wind and rubbing against other particles. But on the moon, when an asteroid hits and sends up a bunch of dust, it all just settles and then never experiences wind, never experiences anything. So instead of being rounded and smoothed, each particle is like a little pyramid or a little like triangular sharp thing. Mm -hmm. And even when dry, if you press down on it, they compress in a way that actually would create the perfect footprint as it's seen on the moon. So again, you know, the the idea like there's no moisture, but it's like, but also Mm -hmm. the particles are different. So they interact differently. It's nice to be able to explain why those explanations are like shoddy. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm sort of okay with those initial questions being asked. Yeah. Well, this was actually, this actually gets to a thing that I wanted to talk about with you. Because my brother was saying to me recently that I'm the least skeptical person he's ever met. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about it like, I'm skeptical of conspiracy theories, but like... 
Are you a skeptic if you're skeptical of conspiracy theories or are you a skeptic by questioning what's been told by the government? Like, mm-hmm. or can you be a skeptic and be both? Well, what did he mean by that? Well, I think, I think he meant like, I'm quick to go along with the official explanation. Oh, with the consensus. You know, yeah. like, I'm like, like, I believe that NASA, when they say that we landed on the moon. Right. Um, well, I think there's a difference between, honestly, being skeptical and being critical. Because you can be critical yeah. of something and, like, really think about it and then still agree that the consensus is correct. Whereas it seems like when you say skeptic, I think that, like, for whatever reason, in my brain, there's already a connotation of, like, eh, Like, you know, right, like, you don't, right. like, you're trying to debunk something. As opposed to if you're being critical of something, like, you truly want right. to understand the, the truth of the matter. And if you're satisfied by that explanation... I don't know. I, I like there's kind of an emotion a- a- attached to yeah, the idea of skeptic. I'm skeptical that your reason for being skeptical is because you want to be the crazy right, skeptic. Right. Like, exactly. I don't wanna... It's like I'm not going to sit here and right. pretend like because it, thinking about it like the movie, one of the Sam Bells is going like, why would the company do this to us? We're not right. clones. Like, what's why would you believe that? And yeah, a lot of the time I'm that voice. Mm-hmm. And in the reality, a lot of the time it's like. Because they're the company. They got investors, man. Right. Like, and that's what the other Sam Bell says. Right. So, you know, I kind of felt like they were both skeptics. But like he, but one was being skeptical of the conspiracy theory of like, why would they do this to us? But then I think that you can change your mind when you realize like there's a legitimate reason why they would do that. Yeah. Let me give one more moon conspiracy. Okay. There's another thing about the lighting on the moon and the pictures that were taken of the first moon landing. And that the harsh light of the sun would create much bigger contrast between light and dark and that you wouldn't be able to see like Buzz Aldrin when he's coming down in the shadow. Uh-huh. But what they don't talk about is the albedo level of the moon's surface. And the albedo is the scientific measurement of brightness. Mm-hmm. So the brightness of the moon's surface, it, it, it acts like a bounce board and it actually like bounces the sunlight off of the ground and allows like a actually composed picture to take place. They didn't need fill lights mm-hmm. in order to get on the, the shadows on the moon. But a lot of people who have a lower level understanding of lighting techniques think that the photography indicates that it was all faked. It's amazing how it just requires more science to prove it. You know what I right. mean? It's like if you if, like so your, if you your assertion is based on an ignorance. A- another one is is that the shadows should look different, mm-hmm. and that the shadows are like at different angles, which indicates that there were multiple lighting sources. Mm-hmm. But if that's only the case if the moon is perfectly flat, right? Which it's not. It's a bumpy <laughs> it's not. Even surface. I know that. Yeah, and so. Uh, it's easily explained like all of the shadows and the ways that they look like slightly different is easily explained by like a moon's surface that's right. a little bumpy. Interesting. So Mythbusters did a really extensive episode on the moon landing conspiracies. It's really good and they busted all the myths. There was this famous study more than a decade ago that helps us explain at least why rejection kind of fucks with us so much so there's this uh, Naomi Eisenberger she's a social psychologist at UCLA and she and her colleagues they brought in people one by one into a lab to play a multiplayer online game called Cyberball that involved tossing a ball back and forth with two other people which were simulated computer programs okay so the two computer program folks they played quote-unquote nicely with the real person for a while but then proceeded to ignore 
the, the person and started just throwing the ball to each other. Mm. So they started, they used these MRIs scans. They showed that the experience of being snubbed lit up a part of the subject's brain, specifically the dorsal anterior's cingulate cortex, that also lights up when the body feels physical pain. Again, it's more evidence of this mind-body connection of like there's a reason why you feel that feeling when you're ignored or snubbed or rejected yeah. or like chosen last for kickball you know the same part of the vein as your pain that receptor. feels pain right but wow. emotional pain is is physical pain. is physical pain yeah that's amazing and the fact that we understand much more about the brain through these mris and you know brain imaging it's just like it's fucking crazy dude emotional pain is Far more, I mean, I don't know. I haven't been in that much physical pain in my life to the point where I've like right. broken yeah, I've never every broken appendage a bone or whatever. Or so I've broken my arm and it sucks balls. But right. like that emotional pain stays with you, man. <laughs> oh my God. That that emotional kick of the balls is yeah. sometimes a little bit it, more Yeah, it, that's a phrase that people use for a good reason. Yeah. We've talked about nature versus nurture and stuff. They've done experiments with, with monkeys, like some that are raised with their moms, some that are raised by the like, like rags in the shape of moms and then, <laughs> yeah it's like a cloth monkey that it's like can simulate like the monkey can hold on to it or whatever uh-huh. but it's not a real mother and then they also have the monkeys that are that are just like in their peer groups and it's like the peer group is like lord of the fucking flies you know they're all like stressed and being like eh. crazy to think that in the first for the first time in 30 years they say mental health disabilities such as like adhd and this kind of thing they outrank physical ones among american children Wow. Now, where I where it's it goes a little bit off, not off the rails, but where I'm a little bit like is they they point out the fact that, you know, so many marriages end in divorce and like mothers are important and all this stuff. So uh-huh. it, it, it there's this sense of like, you know, with with working mothers, this is why this is happening. But really, it's like there's such a shift <laughs> okay. in social norms in general. Yeah. And then it's not just like a kid needs a mom. It's like you, you just it, that's why they say it takes a village. Right. Like there it, there are yeah. social. Somebody said that once. Yeah. Somebody once said that. I don't know that, who she was. peddling it. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah. Barbara Streisand put it the best when she said people, people who need people are the luckiest people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I was really close to starting to be like people, and then <laughs> I, I was like, I, just, I know. Not to. Oh, anyway, it was just a lot. I, I fuck. It was a lot. Yeah. And it makes sense because Sam Rockwell looked like shit by the end of that <laughs> movie. Yeah. <laughs> it well, yeah. They did a good job of making the him that had been there for three years look like shit, and the him that just woke up be like young, strapping, yeah. and well, on that front, I looked into a thing called a genetic kill switch. Mm-hmm. So in the movie, he starts dying after three years. And there's a couple of different possibilities here. It's likely that built into his DNA is a three-year lifespan. Mm -hmm. Jurassic Park had a thing where if the scientists didn't give the dinosaurs a specific amino acid, that they would die. Now, that Uh didn't work out in the movie. Sure, as we remember. Right, because the line, life finds a way. Uh Oh, boy. So in labs where they're trying to engineer potentially super dangerous bacteria they engineer dangerous bacteria so that it cannot survive outside the lab and that they if it doesn't continue to have amino acids and certain other things related to it that it would die if it ever did escape Mm -hmm. so that it's a fail-safe method and apparently even though it breaks down in jurassic park a lot of the leading scientists including this guy george church who kind of invented this whole method 
So he probably has a little bit of self-interest sure. in, involved in this. <laughs> but he, it basically is incredibly safe, and it's a perfect way for genetically engineered organisms to be killed if the worst happens. Which gotcha. Is, but because I was talking about on the Contagion episode, the possibility that they calculate, like, there's a 27% chance that one of these would be released from a lab into the world. Mm-hmm. But I guess if you can also engineer it so that it cannot survive in the world. And another thing is that it cannot mate with its live counterpart uh, in the wild. Sure. So that if it does, you know, it can't actually proliferate or change the ecosystem. Right. Fuck. Heavy stuff. But the hubris is questionable. <laughs> hubris. But yeah, that's what's being portrayed in the movie, I think, is a genetic kill switch. Mm-hmm. For the Sam Rockwells. I don't know, man. That's why this movie is so wild because it's like there's such a human element, but then they throw in like the fact that he's a clone. Like we didn't even touch on clones. I know. I was like, but it seems it's like too obvious, right? Right. I felt like it was (laughs) too easy. (laughs) Too easy. Also, there isn't that much to say about it. Although, you know, let's talk about it for a second. Okay. Because. There's the idea that we would use clones in this way, Mm -hmm. but there's another idea that we would use clones as backup organs to replace our own organs. That's crazy. Yeah. And actually, there was a movie that was very overlooked called The Island, which Mm -hmm. was actually directed by Michael Bay. And it's all about these two people who slowly start realizing that they're stuck in this facility because they're clones of famous people and that at any given point, their organs are going to be harvested for the purpose of... I think that like the same questions that arise in me, even just talking about this right now, is AI right? Right, right. Because it's like he has all the sensibilities seemingly of a human being. He has Mm -hmm. all the consciousness seemingly of a human being. And he has these memories and is like actively looking forward to going home yeah, but his meanwhile his life is a lie it's like a perpetual truman show it fucking sucks yeah yeah so i don't know this movie was wild we didn't even get to touch on flobies either oh yeah <laughs> he yeah, starts dirty. using a floby and I, that was like the, one of the first notes i took i was like floby man i'm gonna do a segment on flobies but yeah. then luckily this whole thing about like solitary confinement and loneliness and like why yeah. we desperately need people it kind of overshadowed it <laughs> So I didn't actually take down any favorite lines because I was just heartbroken the whole time. That mind-body connection, my heart was literally broken. I I, I want to mention he's planning a follow-up film called Mute, which takes place in the same universe, but it's not really a sequel. He wants to do three movies that take place in this world, and apparently Mute, which is done filming is going to serve as an epilogue to Moon and oh. that Sam Rockwell has like agreed to do a little cameo as the clone that made it back to Earth. Right. So, oh, bless his heart. Yeah, I don't know I don't know what this movie is going to be like except that I read that it's about a mute bartender who's looking for love. I mean, so it's gonna be some kind of crazy <laughs> Tinder. Sad... <laughs> Just kidding. Tinder man. Oh. Yeah, it's gonna be some sad. That's interesting. Sci-fi That's totally story. Right. I'm very excited about some it. other you know look in how our technological innovation has led to just our social and moral bankruptcy. Just yeah. kidding. Or and maybe not. Maybe it's awesome. I mean, I have a feeling it's going to be pretty bleak. Oh, okay. But <laughs> yeah, you never know. Cool. Well, uh, thanks. If you guys have anything that you would like to say to us, why don't you shout us out? 
You can find us at ohthatsathing.com. That's right. Or nobutthatsathing.com, whichever you prefer. Yeah, you'll find it. We're at nobutthatsathing on Facebook and Twitter. I'm still at It's a Joy Mia on Twitter and Insta. And I'm at Jeffrey (laughs) Ekman on on Twitter. And yeah, check out the message boards on the website, nobutthatsathing or ohthatsathing.com. We don't know what we're watching next, but we are going to have a great time doing it. Oh, it's going to be a great movie. It's going to be great. Bye. Bye. Bye.